Now, more than ever, the great people of Tennessee are frustrated with the current direction we're headed as a state and as a country. We, the people, need to take a stand together, not simply as individuals, but as a force of nature in order to protect individual liberty. On this show, you'll hear from three voices who lead an organization called Tennessee Stands. Myself, John Fender, the Director of Communications, Gary Humble, the Executive Director, and Kevin Kukaji, the Chairman of the Board. We'll sit down with politicians, business leaders, community organizers, and citizens just like yourself to discuss the ideas, action points, and strategies needed to boldly take a stand and assert the unalienable rights given to us naturally by God. Welcome to the Freedom Matters Podcast. Well, uh, how about um, that Super Bowl? Didn't watch, but... Oh, okay. Uh, I, I should have known better. Kevin's not going to watch the Super wait, Bowl. Wait, wait, wait. I love football, but I'm a Steelers fan. So, so Bengals are in Steelers division. A lot of Steelers fans were rooting against the Bengals. I wasn't, but I just didn't really care. I'm not a football guy either, but I watched for the halftime show because <laughs> my prediction was that the halftime show was going to be a train wreck. That's why what little we did watch, we made sure we turned the channel. I, I turned, the, I turned the halftime show off. Did you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. I did not watch the halftime show. Not I just really. read texts from all my friends who were watching the halftime show. And I'm like, I'm glad I didn't watch. I mean, being a Louisiana boy, I was really pulling for the Bengals, hoping to see mm. Joe Burrow pull one out. Um, it was pretty fun to watch that LSU championship season, but he did a great, he did a great job. No, he did game. well. I, Joe Burrow's going to have the same problem that Ben Roethlisberger did, though. He gets sacked so much, and when he's young, yes. yeah. when he's young, it doesn't matter, and that's what happened to Roethlisberger. But after about five years, he's going to have well, and he's not as big as Roethlisberger. Yeah. Roth, Roth uh, he could take the hits. Yeah. Burrow's not that big. It's true. Burrow got sacked seventy when you count the playoffs seventy times this year. <laughs> Good grief! Yeah, it's a record. So it's a record, right? Yeah. yeah. I realized last week when we had Mike Fisher on, I told him I'm not a hockey guy. He referenced basketball, and I told him I'm not a basketball guy. I just referenced football, and I told you I'm not a football guy. Yeah. So Mike was like, uh, so why am I on this show? <laughs> so, but I do like sports. I'm a baseball guy. So there you go. No, <laughs> just I had to ha- clarify that. I have to say it was great having Mike on. I'm just bummed that he seems to have um, really retired. I would, I would hope that he had more juice, more hockey juice. And you want him to just, come back? I'd love him to come back. Okay. I really appreciate what he said, though. Patriot, yeah. man. Yeah, Patriot, yeah. Christian. It was, it was awesome. Um, I just wish he would have engaged me a little bit more in the hockey talk, but he seemed to be like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. What well, uh, seemed to be like more interested in his children and freedom and oh. things like that. I mean, what happened? <laughs> Priorities, man. People <laughs> yeah, just don't exactly. have them straight. Uh, speaking of Mike, this is a good segue, though, for my first question mm-hmm. of today, if you guys don't mind. Please. Okay. So Canada, let's go to Canada, apparently has just full-on turned communist. Indeed. Authoritarian, so, martial law. Yeah. Something similar. My question is... Well, I mean, think about Trudeau's dad. I mean... Uh, <laughs> Stop. <laughs> to do the Ben Shapiro thing, he's definitely not Castro's son. Stop that. Yeah. Right. Spreading lies and rumors like that. <laughs> Misinformation. Uh, my question is, is that something... Whatever's ha- What's happening in Canada right now, is that something you guys see could happen here? Yes. And, and if it... If so, how how do you see that coming down the pipe? And when it comes down the pipe, how does that affect, how does that come down at a state level? No, that's, that's a good breakdown of the questions. First of all, can it happen here? Absolutely. Yeah. When you have a 
a regime in America that celebrates what Trudeau is doing publicly, as well as, you know, behind the scenes, mm-hmm. they're very happy with what he's doing. International leaders watch other international leaders to see what they can get away with and to see what the public response is. So I think it's, it is good and bad. It's good to see what the truckers are doing. But if for some reason Trudeau would succeed in crushing it using authoritarian powers, then you better believe that the Biden administration, we don't think that Biden is actually pulling the strings, but whoever is pulling the strings behind the president is going to take and, and try similar action. But with regard to the states, we do have a better level of protection than mm-hmm. they do in Canada, because right. even though our states are becoming more and more like provinces every day, um, we still do have some protection in the states. And um, that's why it's so important that what we do here is defend and protect liberty at the state level because it's kind of the last bastion of freedom. Yeah. So you you mentioned world leaders watch other world leaders to see how what they do and how their population reacts. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember where I heard it. One of the hundreds of thousands of podcasts I listened to, but somebody said Canadians seem to be okay with complying with mandates. But the problem comes when you've got a federal government who's now reaching into people's bank accounts Mm -hmm. and freezing assets. So I don't know that the actual population is going to be cool with all of this in Canada. Well, I think as Mike told us last week, the population is is not cool with it, despite what all the paid media may tell us. I think the population is far less for it. And I think that Trudeau is really taking a chance. I know he's desperate, but he really takes a chance when he takes more authoritarian measures because he seeks to... He's excusing his actions for the truckers. He's saying the truckers are at fault for it. Uh, Your supply chain shortages are the truckers' fault. But we know that the the Canadian citizens are now not buying that. By and large, they understand, no, Mr. Trudeau, you could actually change this. You won't even visit with them. You won't even hear their grievances. One step away from complying with them, you won't even take the time to respect them And I think that that's not been lost on the Canadian population. Well, on the financial piece, aren't we already sort of set up for that here in the United States? And you got a measure going through Congress that allows the government now, uh, not just allows the government, but forces financial institutions to disclose uh, certain amounts of data, whether or not that data is hashed and privacy is intact. I'm not entirely sure, but requires those institutions to release data for what transactions over $600 yep. on every $600. every American citizen. Yeah. So yeah. that's you look at something like that and you think, well yeah, could what's happening in in Canada happen in America? It's happening now. That's already happening when government literally is inside of your bank account. All of the preconditions to take that action, yes, are have there. been established. Mm-hmm. And of course they're saying well, the data's not great. We, we can't really see what the transaction's for. Really? So the technology's mm-hmm. there, but you're saying you're not really using it, please. <laughs> but I can see what the transaction's That's for in right. my own bank account. How can you not see it if <laughs> you're right. going in there yourself? <laughs> uh, and, and, and to the other point of, you know, uh, I'll take the how does that trickle down to the states piece. Kevin, you actually sent me this. There was that, that letter uh, was it 30 governors somewhere in that neighborhood Yes, that all pinned, uh, signed a letter to the Canadian government saying, hey, you've got to, which, of course, uh, our governor, Bill Lee, was one of the right. one of the signatories, right. basically telling Trudeau, hey, you've you've got to re- release the mandates or whatever you've got to do to let let the, uh, the supply, chain, supply chain flow because, you know, you're impacting our economy and our jobs and whatever. 
And what you what you realize is that these these economic sanctions in in terms of what sanctions from of the people, right? Mm-hmm. Are having an impact because you have government agencies and governmental leaders that are swayed more by ROI, tax revenue, and economic value mm-hmm. more than they are preserving liberty. If 30 governors, however many it was, if 30 governors are going to send a letter encouraging the Canadian government to relent on their mandates, shouldn't they have already done that in the name of freedom to mm. secure the liberties of the people? Right. But they only did it when the purse strings were threatened. Yep. Right. Their, you, their purse strings, by the way. When it was our purse strings during they 2020, didn't they didn't oh, yeah, care shut, at all. Shut you down and stay home, yeah. baby. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't care. But you start messing with our tax revenue. Of course, where, where do taxes come from? That's all the conversation. But my, my point is, is that can go the opposite way. If, if, the, if the economics were affected in such a way that would require the government to take action to put the mandates in place to appease ourselves continuing to play into the global economy – well, wouldn't they by nature make the same decisions to mm-hmm. keep the money flowing, which we already have in terms of we've we've seen uh, revelations in terms of these ESSER funds and all that flowing into mm-hmm. schools and through uh, through hospitals. So how does it trickle down to the to the states? Show me the money. You start affecting the bottom line of these states budgets and everything's game. Everything's on the table because it's never been in the name of liberty. It's always been in the name of let's just make sure we keep the money flowing. And and you will note in that letter, which I can't take credit for, a friend of ours sent it to to Gary and me. You will note in that letter that it was so diluted. And there were governors, there were um, Canadian province. I, I don't know what they call them, what their equivalent is, but there were some Canadian government officials who were also on this letter. But the most disappointing aspect to me is the letter started off accepting the premise that vaccines were important and necessary to push. They just said, oh, by the way, we think you should, you know, go go with a lighter touch, shall yeah. we say, yeah. in order to allow the money to flow through to us. Yeah. So they, they were not animated at all by liberty. They were man, man, animated purely by economics for themselves, self-interested, um, throw the people under the bus or use the people. Yeah, it started out with the same Rick and Moreau. Look, I mean, we, we acknowledge, we know they're safe and effective. We know vaccines save lives. We know they keep people out of the hospitals, but you just shouldn't mandate them. I mean, why, why are we still regurgitating this nonsense? Two years later when to we To begin know. with. Yeah. When you have, you, ha- you have actual government agencies saying things like, this doesn't stop the spread. Right. It may or may not worsen your symptoms in the hospital or whatever, but it doesn't stop the spread. So why and, why are we still talking about mandates? And now point? there are over 200 um, researched papers that show the dangers. Uh, f- let's set aside the effectiveness argument, which fails on its face now. We now have over 200 papers documenting all of the dangers, the worst being, of course, death, the thousands upon thousands of people that have died from these injections. But all of the injuries, it is no longer, you don't have to be looking hard to find this data and this mm-hmm. information. So anyone to proclaim that it's safe and effective, I told my wife last night, it's kind of like saying to someone, go ahead and play Russian roulette, safe and effective. Mm. I think Canada, to, to me, especially with the current administration we have in the White House, Canada and Australia both are clear indicators on what can come to America 
very quickly mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. we allow it to. Mm-hmm. It's it's clear. It can fall. And so, you, uh, Gary, you were saying the way it trickles down to the states is that we're not going to have a government that stand, a state government that stands up for us unless it affects their bottom line. Well, it, look, in, in the case of Tennessee, that's already become clear. Everything has been based on whether or not hospitals and or federal contractors can continue to receive federal dollars. Same things in the schools. So, you know, look, if if you take federal money completely out of the equation, it's theoretically possible that our General Assembly may have been a little bit more amicable to our cries for freedom. Maybe. Mm. They may have been quicker to act. The, the omnibus bill that we passed may be a little bit more stringent on and err on the side of defending and protecting liberty. But you, you put the possible loss of federal dollars into the mix and everything changes. And you see very quickly how how that flow of dollars to the bottom line really at the end of the day impacts. The, the impact is not based on the constitutionality of what government can and can't do or what it should and shouldn't do. It's based on economic impact. So basically what you're saying, the reverse of what I just said, we... <laughs> If the federal government wants to start going into all of our details of our lives, like bank accounts and stuff like that, what's happening in Canada, and the federal government threatens the state government with funds, then the state government is just going to fold and do it. They fall. Well, yeah, which is why I use the phrase, our states have become more and more like Canadian provinces, even though the states formed the federal government in the United States too many people, and this this is happening with um, rapid succession from legislature to legislature, we've gotten to a point where, where the people who are occupying these offices don't even understand, A, that the states form the federal government, and they don't understand the importance of maintaining this distinct, separate, independent form of government within the United States. They think, oh, well, you know, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, Kentucky, you know, it's all the same geography, Yep. This is what you see with regard to wanting to undermine the Electoral College. They think, oh, we should just have a majority vote. Mm. They don't understand the importance of states in maintaining liberty. So if we lose – if the states become mere geographic boundaries, then we will be like Canada. And as you say, John, a lot of that comes from the federal intrusion economically. They make the states dependent, and we've seen that in Tennessee. They're dependent upon the federal dollars, and so they'll say yes to anything. And if the federal government says, well, we're going to withdraw or withhold funds, oh, okay, I'll go ahead and step on the liberties of the citizens because I want to make sure I still get those funds. Well, and even in terms of, uh, like, for example, the CMS mandate, right, which mm-hmm. which we're still dealing with with laws that are going through the General Assembly right now trying to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think, look— with, with, I'm, I'm not looking to disparage anyone. I, I really think that minus the CMS mandate, that in at large, the General Assembly take the federal money and the lobbyist dollars out of the picture. I, th- I think people would rather protect the rights of these healthcare workers. But all that goes out the window when you bring the money in the mix. And what I've been told is, well, Gary, you just don't understand. You can't just make a law like that. We've got to... We've got to comply with CMS mandates because this, if these hot, which you don't understand, if these if these hospitals lose this federal funding, that's sixty percent of their budget. Well, now that scares the hell out of me because you realize really quickly that well, I'm I'm, I'm going to take them at their word. So you're telling me that the success of our healthcare system here in our state and the ability for my family to have access to healthcare 
rests on federal funding. Federal funding to the tune of sixty percent. We're screwed. That is terrifying. But that, I didn't realize that. That that so to me You've been told that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. By by almost every legislator I've talked to. Wow. So so to me, when I look at that, well, that's one of the main things we should all be discussing. Let's address that. Then. That should be on the table yeah. right now. How do we figure out uh, to, to secure the ability for Tennesseans to take care of Tennesseans uh, with our health care without being reliant on the federal? We had better figure that piece out fast. Yeah. Well, one piece that's going to help us figure that out is that many more Americans now are afraid to go to the hospital. And if you don't have customers, mm-hmm. right, patients, the hospitals will bleed, which in the short term will cause them to rely even more on federal dollars to stay afloat. But I think you've seen in the last two years, especially with these protocols, which are killing people, it's the last thing. I mean, my mother-in-law, she passed away three weeks ago, and we praise God that she never got sick because we were not going to send her to the hospital. Mm-hmm. They all Every time she went to a doctor's appointment, they would ask her, is she vaccinated? Does she want to get vaccinated? No. She's healthy. She's fine. She doesn't need that. But we feared if she got into the hospital that, A, we would lose control over her medical care, and B, who knows what she would pick up. I think the hospitals... So the hospitals being a place where people used... If, if you go back pre-COVID... Everybody would say, well, if I'm sick, I don't have any problem with going to the hospital. I trust my doctor, even though all the, again, the preconditions for what was coming were kind of set in place decades ago. But it became so much more manifest during COVID that these doctors do not have the best interests of the patients in mind, by and large. I'm not saying all doctors, but um, they work for big pharma. Is it more fair to say that the hospital systems themselves don't have the best interests? Well, that's where it starts. Because your doctors are, I mean, typically your doctors are in like smaller practices, right? It depends on the doctor. That's why I say not all doctors. But I know many doctors who have bought this hook, line, and sinker and who are willing to be as authoritarian in what their demands are and the expectations of their patients. But I think that this is going to cause, hopefully, a collapse of the medical system as it stands today because the medical system today is not committed to caring for patients, right? It's all about money and dollars. It's not about the patients anyway. So if the patients get scared because all of their friends and family that go in the hospital end up dying from causes that shouldn't have been um, even considered a worry when they entered the hospital, when this happens, people are going to look for alternate means of providing their medical care, including even staying out of the hospital and doing homeopathic, regular, old-fashioned, right, medical care. I think... We surrendered so much of what we do to the the professional, the elites, the professional medical profession. That's sorry, it's redundant. The professional medical regime. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, thinking that we needed these things, and a lot of what a lot of what's recommended um, never was necessary in the first place, and ends up contributing and making more of a problem. And I think as people become more comfortable with taking care of themselves. They're not just going to go to the hospital and assume that the hospital has their best interest in mind. Hmm. And that will break it down. I I have hope that that's going to happen because, um, Gary, I think you know, and John, you may, There's there are a number of doctors who are even looking at um, s- establishing this 
this kind of parallel universe mm-hmm. of medical facilities and and that are not connected at all with Medicare and federal government and be able to operate truly independently. Mm-hmm. Well, so actually, it, it's interesting you mentioned that. I, I did a show, I, I was a guest host for Let's Talk America for Dr. Alan Keyes. I was uh, really excited to be asked to do that. And that was this week, and uh, I got to interview one of my very good friends, Pastor Sharam Hadian out of the Knoxville area. And, and if they want to go watch this, where, where can they go Yeah, they can go, you can go to brighteon.tv, uh, brighteon.tv, and just look up Let's Talk America with Gary Humble, and uh, you'll find these two episodes. But one episode with Pastor Sharam Hadian, he's out in Knoxville, and they're doing this. Like, they're operating it right now. Uh, the step one is basically they're trying to build a, a, a network where they can simply connect people who are interested in becoming part of this private association and and connect them with like-minded providers. And they're doing it right now. You can go to tilproject.org slash exodus. That's tilproject.org slash exodus. And uh, they're treating it like a ministry. They're saying, look, we're trying to build a system where we provide an opportunity for like-minded people to come together in community uh, and, and connect with providers who are like-minded, who are willing to provide these services to them. Because we, look, we've had these stories come to us at Tennessee Stands through phone, email, all over the state of Tennessee. And one in particular, to me, is the most egregious. Great example, Vanderbilt University, this young woman has a life-debilitating disease she's had for a long time, and she needs a kidney transplant. Now, mind you, we're not even talking about the transplant list. We've, we've, We've had a lot of stories where hospitals are taking people off of the transplant list because they're not vaccinated. But listen to how egregious this is. This young woman's brother was already an approved donor, done the tests, everything, and is willing to give his sister one of his kidneys. So completely off of the list. Hmm. You you have a willing donor and a needy Recipient. Don't even need a list at this point. That's it. Mm-hmm. All, all you need, all that needed to happen is the hospital needs to provide a bed and a surgeon yep. and do the deal. And Vanderbilt refused to do that operation strictly because she was unvaccinated, even though her brother is standing right there ready to give her his kidney. Mm-hmm. And they know that without that operation, she will die. Now, I believe uh, UT Knoxville ended up doing the, the procedure, mm-hmm. but Vanderbilt re- refused mm-hmm. based on the fact that she was unvaccinated. That kind of stuff makes me sick, yeah. and people should be prosecuted and put in jail for the rest of their life yeah. for that kind of activity. So this new this new system that's trying to be... St- or that is being set up. What's the what's the difference in that and uh, these um, co-ops that already exist? Well, I think it's probably sort of similar to the co-ops, uh, except that they're looking to expand this into a, a full-on healthcare service. I mean, eventually, there will need to be a, fa- a surgical facility, an right. urgent care facility, mm-hmm. facilities that people can go to. Because right now, even with the the cooperative programs where you share. You're, you you still must go to a facility like Vanderbilt, who then still sure, can reject yeah. you on a medical mm-hmm, basis, right. you know, for whatever reason. So, you know, it's it's almost like we've been having this conversation with so many different people about the need for a second economy. And, and you know, I've got to tell you, part of that discussion frustrates me because my <laughs> – actually, every discussion that I've gotten into regarding the second economy, I've been very much against it. And almost sort of angered by it. My response has been, well, I'm not going to go create a second economy. I helped create this one and I want it back. Yeah. 
I'm not giving it to you just because you won't let me use it anymore. Yeah. It's mine. And so I've been fighting where I think I'm at today and seeing what's happening glo- glo- globally. There are so many people complying and buying into this stuff mm-hmm. that I don't know if there's a way out without creating a second economy. It's the mm, same question, point. Gary, that our founders addressed. <laughs> yep. Right? Look how many of our founders tried for so long to maintain their connections with Great Britain. Because remember, we were never trying to rebel. In fact, calling calling the war for independence a, a revolution is actually a misnomer because it was the British who were revolting against the long-established rights of Englishmen of the colonists. And for the longest time, they tried to maintain that relationship. They didn't want to not be British. Their histories and traditions and even the, the foundations of our Constitution came from the British Constitution and Western civilization and, and, and all of that history. But it, when it got to the point that they realized that now it was Great Britain, King George, and Parliament who were working against all of their traditional rights, they had no choice but to establish mm. a separate con- a separate mm-hmm. country, a uh, separate nation. So, yeah, I, I, I'm with you, Gary, in the, in the sense that it always sounds like, no, we should just try to make this work. But when the people who control the existing co- economy, which now can be a very small number of people because of technology, which is frightening, um, you, you're kind of a, you're kind of undertaking a fool's errand by staying in that economy and continue. Like Charlie Brown, the football, right? Mm-hmm. How many times are we going to let Lucy pull this football out from under us before we say, "Oh, I've got to establish my own parallel universe"? That that's a great point, which moves me further to yeah, it's time to build something new. Well, uh, speaking of the revolution, and go back to the top of that my question, and I let me preface what I'm about to ask with. Tennessee stands is in no way uh, advocating for a revolution at this point. <laughs> never. Can, we never. I can I, see it now. CNN picks up the, you know, Tennessee organization <laughs> calls for another revolution. Well, let's, let's be clear. Who's revolting? Our own governments are revolting against us. Right. The government has declared war against its citizens, both on the federal level, the state level. You can see it by their actions, by their conduct. Those who are meant to be upholding the law have become lawless. They are the ones revolting. All that we are trying to do is to maintain the rights that were given to us by God and that were enshrined in our Constitution. Yeah. So, to my question is, I don't know what the Canadian do Canadians own guns. Do they? Do they? It's are a they allowed to own Mike weapons? Fisher. I don't yeah, know. I don't know. I guess some of them do. I don't know. I th- I, I think they. Can, but can they you, can can't, you carry? They can't carry. I think no. they can own a weapon, but they can't carry. So you can put it on the wall? Yeah, you can yeah. put it on so the wall. So you can have it in your house. I think that's yeah. right. Someone might need to correct Look me Look at it, that. shine it, <laughs> dry, <laughs> dry fire. <laughs> yeah. But my question is, like, is, is that a, uh, because we do have that, still have that right, does that, is that a deterrent, do you think, to a federal government saying, we're not going to give you the funds, and the state government saying, okay, well, then we'll step on the rights of our citizens, but does does that deter them? Because you know, back in the day, what was it? The Japanese emperor before World War II said that they would never come through, come through Alaska and down into the U.S. because he knew that there was a gun behind behind every blade of grass. Yeah, he ended up attacking Pearl Harbor anyway. But whatever, that's a whole other story. Uh, but not Alaska. It's true. Uh, so does the, do you think that's a deterrent? I mean, is that gonna st- is that gonna be in anyone's form like mind that? 
well, our citizens might not like this so much and might actually rise up and they could be a they could be an issue. I, I think that it's not as much as as much of a deterrent as it should be. I think that the government knows and they've pressed certain buttons and they know that people are willing to give up they're willing to give up their freedoms at, at a very low cost. And I think they're willing to give up if the IRS came in and said we're going to we're going to penalize you if you own firearms, right? And, and you know, the IRS has the power, of course, to seize your bank accounts. Mm. I can imagine a lot of people being very quick to give up their arms. Don't give them any ideas, Kevin. Yeah, you can stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? I, I, I think that is, that's always what's concerned me. Mm. All right, well, then ad- addressing states, I'll segue into my second question. I feel like I've taken over this episode. I think you had stuff, Kevin. You brought stuff with you. I just took over. We're doing well. As a lot of us know, a lot of the blue states are currently reversing all of their mask mandates. Even some of them are reversing their vaccination mandates. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I have an inkling of why that is. I believe it has to do with the 2022 midterms. This is a political thing. But I'd love to hear what you guys think. One, and then two, if it is because of the political atmosphere in the 2022 midterms do you, is it too little too late like uh, man i hope it's too little too late well obviously <laughs> because we there needs hope. to be consequences but on a on a political strategy level for the democratic party is mm-hmm. it too little too late i think so yes yeah. but you know we have voter integrity issues that concern me now it is harder just as a technical matter it's more difficult to rig the elections of all 435 congressmen and um, what do we got? 33 senators every year, well, and you have, every every election, sorry. And then you have all the state elections, right? It's a lot harder to control that. We, the, the reason that the t- 2020 election was easier for them to manipulate is because there's one target, right? Right, And they also knew, even with that, they had to go into specific states right. and, and control that. Now you've got 50 states and you have multiple jurisdictions. And I think that's why that's why you're seeing what you're seeing as far as lifting mandates. Because they didn't suddenly have a change of heart and decide, oh, we don't want to be authoritarian anymore. Or, the, you know, the science didn't suddenly change. Yeah, no, poll, polls are clearly showing them now that people are pissed off and they yeah. had it. Yeah. E- even, even their own. Yeah. Well, so I'll take the same question, but to you, Gary, like on the Tennessee level— is there anything we're seeing on, on the—I mean, we're already a red state as it is, but, like, is there anything on the Tennessee state level that's going you're going to see a giant change? I, I don't know how giant it will be, but I think there are going to be some shockers. I really do. I really think there are going to be some entrenched incumbents that are going to draw challenges this year, both in uh, our General Assembly and state elections and, and locally, you know, here on county commissions. I mean, you know, just where we are here locally, you know, we've got— 2022, you know, this is uh, all 24 of our local county commissioners are up. And that's the story um, around the state. And they're drawing challengers that they never dreamed they'd draw. Additionally, the Republican Party is is playing games to somewhat. I mean, it, they've got a an issue in terms of their bylaws and, and these bona fide Republicans. But you've got also have a lot of folks that would love to run as Republicans, but they're new to politics mm-hmm. and they are they're new to Tennessee and they don't meet uh, the Republican bylaw definition of a bona fide Republican. 
So you're going to see a lot of people running as independents. Mm. You know, I, I, there, I guarantee you without question in 2022, there will be more independent candidates across the state, especially in county level races than has ever been in but the history of Tennessee. As, do you see that as a good thing? I do. I do because because historically independents can't draw the vote. Uh, well, but we're I think we're in a different season, and I think what we're going to learn, and I, well, and I hope to see the demise of party politics. Mm. This two that's part a, that's a big one. Well, man, this two party system that we set up, where they are the key holder, and what ends up happening is that elected officials are much more beholden to appease the machine and their political party mm-hmm. than they are their constituents. So is there no hope to take the Republican Party back? Uh, well, I'm not saying that. I think I think there is. I, I think this is maybe what's going to pull them back. Mm. I, I think these candidates who are willing to, to, to step out there and run as independents are going to show these parties that we, you know, we don't care. Let me just say this, and this is going to be offensive to some people. Do it. <laughs> We're all about offending. <laughs> I could care less about the Republican Party. The Republican Party can go away tomorrow. I don't care. Amen. What I care about is that there are people that exist and maybe even a party that exists that is willing to uphold constitutional conservative principles, principles that I believe in as a God-fearing husband, father, bleeding red blood, bleeding American and Tennessean. I have ideals that I hold to according to our founding principles, and those are the things that I want to see upheld. And and if the Republican Party is standing up to such a degree that they are truly holding up those values and those, and those principles, I'm for it. I'll be your biggest advocate. But the day that you set yourself against the individual constitutionally secured liberties of the people of the state, you've made me an enemy. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not – and I, I think what you're going to see is that thought is becoming to be pervasive amongst the people is that we don't care about parties as much as we used to. People are not going to just press the R button and vote down the line anymore. Mm-hmm. They, they've become wise to the fact that just because you have an R by your name doesn't always mean that your ideals line up to mine and you voting for you may not be in my family's best interest. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think 2022 is going to be a pivotal year, God willing, that we truly see a turn in that sentiment and we put we put parties and the the power brokers on their heels and the power returns to the people you're you're going to see some incumbents turn and some seats turn that in prior years you would have never seen yeah i hope you're right and i've said it multiple times on this show i hope that's the case is that the general public the what what am I? What did you call me again? TC Mitts. Uh, yeah, TC Mitts, Mitts. the celebrated man in the streets. All of the TC Mitts in this state have had their eyes opened mm-hmm. over the past two years to not only what the evil that is there, but also the who we thought were the good guys are now being revealed as not the good guys, yeah. just in the good guys' clothing. Yeah, I I think if there's ever been any pivotal time period in our history where that's going to be revealed, and we're going to find out whether that's true. This is the time period because mm-hmm. what has happened in the last two years is something that even the most negative among us 
I would think would say is unfathomable. How we have seen lawlessness expand, how we've seen the whole world come under this delusion and believe the lie and advance the lie in the face of a multitude of evidence right in front of them, they would still disregard it, dismiss us, and say, we're, we're still marching forward. And I think people are frightened by that. So I, 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 I hope the same. Yeah. I, I hope you're right, because it seems in my spirit that people are there. Mm-hmm. Can we get around the structure, the power structure, the financial power, and the power that comes with that uh, money, which is not just, by the way, in Tennessee, that money is connected to corporatist global interests. But I think they can be strategic uh, in, in them because, as Gary notes, they're happening at the local level. You start taking out school boards and county yeah. commission and state senators and state representatives. These things do have impact, and they start to send a signal to others in power that they can't do things the way they used to. Mm-hmm. Speaking of money and influence really quickly, it reminded me, a shout, shout out to our friends at uh, the Tennessee Conservative. You can find them at tennesseeconservativenews.com. They released an article this week. They've been doing some digging, and it's it's hard to find all the financial ties, but in all of their digging, they've estimated that in the state of Tennessee alone, special interests lobbyists spend a cumulatively, spend in, in, in some total, $60 million a year in events and, and all these little things, accoutrements, things they provide to to our legislators here in Tennessee to influence 60 legislation. Million. $60 million a year Do you know spent what, by lobbyists. Uh, cite that again, the, the place where we can find that. That's that's an article that was just posted this week at the at uh, TennesseeConservativeNews.com. Okay. Hmm. 60 million. Now, now it's illegal for a lobbyist to directly give right. money or, or, or it's illegal for a special interest group to give, but it's not illegal for that special interest group to pay a lobbyist now to grease the skids, mm, so yeah, to speak. Yeah. And that's how they do it. 60 yeah, like, million a year. Just like in the music industry, you know, pay for play. Right. Direct payment. That's illegal. Was that illegal, doesn't exist. But, um... <laughs> There's a lot of indirect benefits that flow, (laughs) nevertheless. Uh, All right. So let's let's go into um, the end of this episode with our favorite um, segment. Kevin, things we would not do as governor. Okay. Things I would never do as governor. Ding, 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 ding. Uh, These ones I'm pulling up from the school page, my my, uh, school notes. I would never pretend to speak for liberty while encouraging facilitating or looking the other way when counties, cities, and local governments, including schools, impose unconstitutional, inhumane mandates and conditions on your liberties. Mm. You mean like by saying it's not your fault and there's nothing you can do exactly. about it, you're just the governor? <laughs> it's it, Call the Department of Education. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, right. Why are they breaking the law? Call the Department of Education. You mean when they, like, put masks on my kids without asking me exactly. when it's against the law to do so? Yeah. So you're getting the point. So that, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. that, was, yeah. that was clear enough. Okay. Uh, number two, I would never make public proclamations of my concern for your liberties while allowing local governments and private businesses to deprive you of those liberties in order to shield myself from culpability. Because we don't regulate businesses in Tennessee. No, we don't do that in Tennessee. Mm-mm. No, no. Pri- private businesses should be able to do whatever it is they want to do. Including not paying our taxes, so we, we uh, can totally. just get away with I mean, that, right? That's freedom. We're not regulating. No, we're so. talking about freedom. Yeah. Freedom in Tennessee. <laughs> And number three for today, and boy, I'd like to go on with these, but we got to save some for future episodes. I would never look the other way while schools and school boards run roughshod over the liberties of parents 
while pretending that my hands were clean or acting as if they were tied. You mean, you mean while they're uh, leasing out porn to your kids yeah. in the library? Yeah, why? Things like that? I, I have a question. If, if, and not teaching CRT, but funneling it in through other ways and forms of, yeah, so, uh, of getting it into our kids' so, minds. So let's pass legislation or sign legislation that bans CRT by name, right? But we allow the ideology to continue under other names. Can, and, I, can I tell you a story pertaining yes, to that? I have a personal story that happened last week, two weeks ago, to my own children. So we're not teaching CRT in schools, right? It's not happening. But we have... So my kids are in the Franklin Special School District. They're not mm-hmm. in Williamson County. They're in the FSSD. We don't have wit and wisdom in FSSD. I can't remember what it's called, but it's a different curriculum. But all apparently all of the guidance counselors for Williamson County all have their own curriculum that they go by and their own principles and teaching points and all that that they agree upon and then all disseminate those throughout the schools. And it's called um, Social and Emotional Learning, yep. SEL. Oh, yeah. This, this... Brought to you by Commissioner Penny Schwinn. This is the new CRT. Yep. So we're not teaching CRT, quote, CRT, but we are still teaching it through this SEL. Mm-hmm. So my my girls, uh, their guidance counselor is incredibly nice guy. I have nothing against the guy personally, but he comes into their classroom. I think it's once a month. Maybe it's once a week. I don't remember. But he comes in. He reads them a book. This book is called Amazing Grace. It's about a little girl named Grace. She's going to try out for the Peter Pan play at school. Well, she happens to be black. So all of the kids in, the, in the, her class tell her, well, you can't be Peter Pan. You don't have white skin. Well, she says, but I can still try out. They said, well, you can't be Peter Pan. You're a girl. Peter Pan's a boy. But I can still try. So she practices and she gets really good and she memorizes all of her lines and she delivers them perfectly and she tries out and she gets the part. And that's in the book, it's because she practiced really hard and she memorized her lines mm-hmm. and she did a really good job and she got the part. He closes the book and then he, and then proceeds to tell all of the kids in my girl's classroom that she got the part because we all have to be equitable. We have to use equity mm. and be equitable and give the fem- the black female the part instead of giving the white male the part. Wow. So so the book itself actually the is book, teaching a fairly decent lesson. The book did not say anything about that. Yeah. Yeah, you you try you try hard despite people telling you you can't mm-hmm. do something and you, and you get the part. You accomplished it because of your hard work and your dedication mm-hmm. to to striving for that. Great message. Teach that to all of our children. Exactly. So yes. well, and to, to that point, I asked my girls, I was like, "Well, why did she get the part?" They actually said because she tried really hard and she memorized all of her lines. Great. That's because they've got good parents. And they didn't remember the word equity. I had to like yeah. pull that out of them. They were like, and he used this word to describe the book. And I was like, equity? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was it. That was it. <laughs> well, the other thing that's happening, and I'm sure our Tennessee Stands audience is on this. I read an article today that um, Brother, you know, who makes copiers and printers? Yeah. Brother is funding... LGBT books in Memphis, in the Memphis School District. Man, I don't want to have to go get another printer. Come on <laughs> I got HP printers in the office here. We're good. I, I'm so, not to uh, switch. <laughs> the point being that if I were governor, I would not allow this stuff to go unchallenged, right? You can pass legislation, you can sign legislation and make it look good for your uh, political stunt, but the reality is we're allowing corporate and globalist corporate companies to go ahead and infiltrate the school boards directly and acting as if, well, we can't do anything about that because why? Our favorite line, 
Private business. We right? don't regulate. Can't business. regulate we don't private business. So let yeah. the private business bring all the porn and all the LGBT mm. material they want into the schools. That would be easy to call out, even if you believed. I don't think it's true, but even if you believed you couldn't stop it uh, legislatively, mm-hmm. you call it out. You get on your bully pulpit, right? Bully you call pulpit, a press conference and you immediately address it. Yeah. How can one who professes faith in Christ as the governor of the state of Tennessee allow rampant pornography all throughout our school system? It's in material. It's very difficult to get it removed from the library. Um, it's difficult to get it removed from books, which, as Gary pointed out, thank you very much to our commissioner of education, Right, who who establishes rules? So CRT, anti-CRT legislation is passed, but the Department of Education, the Commission of Education, establishes rules which delay, 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 and make it impossible for parents to bring a complaint. And as uh, Martin Luther King always said, justice delayed is justice denied, and that's what's happening. Also, the governor can, you know, say, well, I signed legislation that bans CRT. Yeah, yeah. talk to the Department of Education. I don't know what they're yeah. doing over there. Yeah, I don't know what this SEL stuff is. <laughs> oh, I did have one more. <laughs> okay. Because you d- address SEL. Um, I would not sit idly by while so-called social emotional learning replaces longstanding and proven education standards and means of teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Please, 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 if you're a parent, go look up SEL and dive into it. Figure it out. It's the so new, that you it's can the new CRT. It. Yeah. Well, good episode, guys. Good conversation. Thank yeah. you. Um, we got lots of ratings and reviews, so keep them coming. It's good stuff. It helps us as a show. Yep. And, We'd love, uh, it's your open invitation for Joe Rogan. And Joe still. Rogan always has an open invitation. <laughs> always. <laughs> right. So, Thanks, guys. Till Thanks. next week. Thank you for listening to the Freedom Matters podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Tennessee Stands, visit TennesseeStands.org to donate, volunteer, or get more information about what we're doing to preserve liberty for the people of Tennessee. You can also follow along on all social platforms at Tennessee Stands. And remember, as revolutionary Thomas Paine once stated, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigues of supporting it.